Hello and welcome to CCL's Training Tonight, a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight's topic is part two of how to create a clean and stable electric grid. Part one focused on wind and solar power, transmission, energy storage, and demand response. And part two tonight is going to focus on hydro, geothermal, nuclear, and carbon capture. Join CCL Research Coordinator Rick Knight for a training that's going to provide an overview of what kinds of energy and infrastructure will be needed for a stable, clean energy electric grid and the main technologies that are most likely to get us there. So with us tonight, we're joined by our wonderful speaker, Rick Knight, a retired chemical engineer who now serves as one of CCL's research coordinators. Rick has a degree in chemistry and studied chemical engineering at the Illinois Institute of Technology before spending 41 years working on energy and pollution control research at the Gas Technology Institute. Rick has been a CCL volunteer and group leader since 2012 and joined CCL staff in 2018. And if we've done our job well, the three following learning goals are what you will walk away from tonight. Reviewing what kinds of energy and infrastructure will be needed for a clean and stable energy electric grid, highlighting the challenges behind further adoption of these energy sources and infrastructure projects, and helping understand how complementary solutions interact and can support that all-important grid reliability. So with that, I will pass it to Rick. Thank you all so much for being here, and you're in for a real treat. The floor is yours, Rick. Uh, okay, I'm going to start by offering some background on this training resource and then describe the four technologies that Brett mentioned in this session. And I'll explain their roles in maintaining a stable, clean electric grid. I'll also spell out what issues or concerns come up with each of them, how much they can provide, tackle some FAQs, and then finally open up the virtual floor for your questions. So as Dana told us a couple of weeks ago, decarbonizing our economy requires kind of a one-two punch. That is electrifying as close to everything we can while making our electric grid as clean as we can. That is free of greenhouse gas emissions. And we need to do that while keeping it stable. That is free of blackouts, brownouts, or any kind of outs as American consumers are used to. Now, experts project that cheap wind and solar will supply most of our clean energy, but they can't cost-effectively supply 100% of our electricity due to their intermittent nature. We would have to overbuild massively both generators and transmission lines in order to keep the lights on everywhere all the time if it was all wind and solar. So even now, more sectors are electrifying all the time, so we already face the question of how can we supply clean power while maintaining a stable grid? So we need complementary solutions, which means firm and dispatchable generation needed to back up that intermittent generation from wind and solar. <clears throat> so here are the four kinds of firm clean generation methods that I'll brief you on today. Hydropower, geothermal power, nuclear power, and carbon capture utilization and storage. The training pages on these can be found by navigating to resources and training, and then all training topics, then scroll down to climate science and tech, and then to the page titled how to clean 
how to create a clean and stable electric grid, which looks like this. And you can go through the whole training or just pick out the technology area you want to focus on. So some definition of terms is in order here. Firm power means that the supplier of the electricity, the power plant or other generator, agrees to supply a certain level of kilowatts to the utility without interruption during some agreed period, during a period covered by an agreement, as the legal terminology says. That way, the utility and customers can rely on electricity being available, barring certain emergencies. Now, dispatchable power, on the other hand, means power that can be ramped up or down in response to demand. And it's also a matter of agreement between the supplier and the utility, but in a little bit different terms. The supplier agrees to turn its output up or down to match the utility's needs. So I'll try to point out how this works for each of our four technologies as we go along. So first up is hydropower, which is short for hydroelectric power, sometimes referred to just as hydro. So this is a way to tap the energy of flowing water to generate electricity by running it through a turbine. And interestingly, it uses the potential energy of difference in elevation, and that energy ultimately comes from the sun, evaporating water into the atmosphere, which then comes down as rain or snow to fill our streams and rivers. And, and that running water has been used for millennia to grind grain and other tasks, but only since 1881 for electric power. Barring unusual environmental conditions like drought, hydropower can be regarded as firm power. And it's also dispatchable because it's easy to adjust up or down simply by bypassing the turbine. Now today, hydropower generates about 6% of US electricity and 16% worldwide. Now hydropower, at least at the large scale, is tied to the geography of an area. And you can see it on this map where the current hydro plants are located uh, in the lower 48. It also shows when they were put into service. And so as you can see, most of these big projects were built during the post-depression uh, post and, and post-war era, 1930 to 1970. And uh, not so much after that, when the continuing uh, electricity boom was fueled mostly by coal, nuclear, and a bit later by natural gas. But even though new hydro has slowed down in the US, now that we need to deeply cut emissions, it can provide firm dispatchable backup power for those intermittent renewables. Now this map, uh, the next up, I'm sorry, uh, is uh, geothermal power. It's a way to tap into heat energy uh, deep under the earth in a way that generates electricity. Aside from wind, solar, and hydropower, most large-scale electric power for the last century has been generated by using heat to turn water into steam that then spins a turbine attached to a generator. And that heat has mostly come from burning fuels like coal and gas, but it can also come from the Earth's primordial uh, heat buried right under our feet. As a matter of fact, the U.S. has been exploring geothermal power generation since 1922, but that was a short-lived effort in California. The first sustained commercial geothermal power plant at the same site launched in 1960 and has expanded ever since. 
Like hydro, geothermal is both firm and in theory dispatchable because the turbine can be quickly engaged or bypassed in a matter of minutes. Today, geothermal energy contributes only 0.4% of electricity in the US and about the same percentage worldwide. But analysts maintain that the untapped potential could expand to 10 times that percentage by 2050, that percentage of demand by 2050, which will of course go up. So here's a map of uh, geothermal resources in the US. The redder the color, the more favorable the area. Uh, the little yellow dots, if I can find my pointer. Oh, oh here it is. These little yellow dots, they identify uh, hydrothermal sites, which means water or steam hotter than 90 degrees C. And you can see how the heat potential is clustered in the west and southwest. That's not where the greatest population density is, but it's where most of the population growth is happening. And it's also where climate change is increasing demand due to rising heat and drought. Now, nuclear power is a way to tap into a unique type of energy packed into the nucleus of uh, certain atoms, heavy radioact radioactive elements like uranium in order to generate electricity from that heat. Nuclear energy is, of course, one of the most controversial of all energy technologies for a bunch of reasons, and we'll get into those. Although the first nuclear reactor to generate electricity was in 1951, the first commercial nuclear plants didn't start up until 1960. Now, today, nuclear provides 18% of U.S. electricity and about 10% worldwide. Nuclear power is firm, but is it dispatchable? Kind of, but not really, because it is quite slow to adjust up and down. Maybe some new technology will change that, but as of today, it can't really be considered dispatchable. Although my proponents say it is, but it's, it's a little bit slow. And now here is a map of the 93 operating nuclear plants in the US. Now clearly they tend to be sited near the large population centers. As far as greenhouse gas emissions go, nuclear power falls somewhere between hydropower and wind energy and about 98% lower than fossil fuel plants. But of course, there are well-known concerns and we'll get to those shortly. But first, a brief overview of the last technology that we'll cover today. That's carbon capture, utilization and storage or CCUS for short. This is a system to grab carbon dioxide out of power plant exhaust, that, that's the combustion gases from burning a power plant fuel, and then take it away, stash it somewhere where it won't affect the climate. Now carbon capture actually is mature, well understood technology, but it adds costs to the power plant operation. After all, it costs nothing to just let it go up into the air, but it costs something to capture it, generally quite a bit depending on how concentrated the CO2 is to start with. The more concentrated, the more efficient it is to capture. Now CCUS can in theory help reduce carbon emissions during the transition to carbon-free energy that we're all working forward toward in the near future. As for the question of dispatchability, that really depends on what kind of power plant it's attached to. Natural gas can be ramped up or down in a matter of minutes, 
coal plants are slower, a carbon capture plant may stretch that out too, as it's necessary to keep the capture efficiency balanced within some limits. So a little more explanation because this technology is a little complicated. At the power plant where fuel is burned, the gases leaving the furnace uh, are treated to remove pollutants like particulate matter and other nasty stuff. Then the filtered gas goes into a chamber here uh, where, uh, where a special liquid is sprayed from above and that liquid absorbs the CO2 and then the scrubbed exhaust over here goes into, uh, goes into the atmosphere up here, clean exhaust. The solvent with the CO2 then goes to another chamber here where it's heated to drive off the CO2, which is then piped away. The solvent is then recycled back to the first chamber. So you get a circulation like that, taking out the CO2 and sending it away. Now that CO2 can be piped to some manufacturer who uses it to make products like building materials, like uh, special types of concrete or, or polymers, using renewable energy to provide the energy for that, uh, that transformation. So that's the utilization option or it can just be pumped underground where it stays for a long, long time and ultimately gets absorbed into these underground structures. That's the storage option. Utilization seems politically attractive because you can make something useful from the carbon, but it turns out that when you crunch the numbers, all of the products that could possibly be made from CO2 only add up to a few percent of our emissions. So most of that carbon dioxide will still have to be stored deep underground in what is referred to as geological storage. Uh, fortunately, there's a lot of underground capacity for that storage option. Again, looking for my pointer, oh, there it is. A lot of underground capacity. Uh, and just in the US, there's enough capacity to store about a quarter of our annual carbon emissions underground. And the International Energy Agency estimates that global capacity could theoretically store hundreds of years of emissions at current rates. So that's the background on those four technologies, all of which could help out with the need for firm power to back up wind and solar. But now let's look at the strengths and weaknesses of each technology. First, with hydropower, the advantages are that it's steady and consistent 24 seven. It's a low tech solution. It doesn't require exotic materials. It's easily dispatchable and dams can supply auxiliary community benefits like flood control, support for irrigation, supplying clean drinking water. The disadvantages are that suitable sites are limited it can be affected by drought, which can lower water levels. This has been a big problem in the Southwest. The construction of dams and reservoirs has ecosystem impacts. And uh, large dams could result in community displacement. Now for geothermal, the advantages include a large untapped potential. It can be available 24 seven without being affected by weather like hydro. It can employ skilled oil and gas workers who ex have extensive experience at the needed drilling technologies and it's easily dispatchable. There are disadvantage of geothermal 
power too. Even though the total amount of heat stored in the earth is vast, there are still limited sites where our technology can economically get at that energy. There is the need to consider possible seismicity in inducing earthquakes. It's also tricky to assess the potential at any given site until you actually drill down, which is costly. And there are particularly lengthy permitting rules for geothermal projects. Now, nuclear power has these advantages. It's steady and reliable 24-7 once it's up and running. It does have a very low life cycle carbon footprint. It also has a small land footprint compared to the amount of power generated. On the other hand, there is the issue of public mistrust. Again, due to the fact while catastrophes are very rare, they are at the least very disruptive. There is an issue of radioactive waste storage. Nuclear plants have high capital costs and mining of uranium creates environmental concerns, especially here in, in the US and tribal areas where much of the uranium ore is located. Carbon capture and utilization storage has certain advantages. It can be applied to existing fossil fuel power plants to lower the greenhouse gas emissions that are already coming out. That also means there's no need to build new transmission lines because the plants are already there. It can be deployed quickly at most sites. And if combined with biomass fuels, negative emissions are possible. That's called biomass energy with carbon capture and storage, or BECCS. But the disadvantages of CCUS include concern about fossil fuel lock-in meaning that it could prompt utilities to just keep building more fossil fuel plants. CCUS adds capital and operating costs to existing plants, so is it best for consumers? Moving CO2 from power plants to storage sites would require CO2 pipeline expansion, which could lead to hazardous leakage. And finally, even though BECCS could take CO2 out of the atmosphere, it could lead to adverse ecosystem impact. So so there you have it, nothing is perfect. Between public policy and market trends, it's quite a task to predict what right mix of power solutions can lead us to a net zero future. But let's take a look at what one prominent think tank has come, to, uh, come up with in their modeling. Princeton University has done extensive modeling on this question. And in October, 2021, they issued a report called Net Zero America. They modeled one reference scenario, meaning business as usual, and five net zero scenarios. Again, let me find my pointer, here it is. Okay, and we'll go into those, uh, those five uh, scenarios. So here's the breakdown for power generation in terawatt hours under that reference scenario going from 2020 across to 2050. So, um, right, and that, so the color codes are here at the top left and where it's, it's not really easy to distinguish all the colors, but you can see renewables are at the top and uh, fossil fuels and then finally biomass, which is a, a very narrow little sliver at the bottom. And total electricity demand grows by only 26% in that business as usual scenario. So to relate it to what we've been discussing, here's what it looks like if you combine all the firm generation into one blob. 
That's all the firm sources, which are about 85% today and predicted to be about 62% by 2050 as the wind and solar ramp up. And if you pick out the firm and clean sources, they look like this. Actually declining a bit as wind and solar grow, but coal and gas stay about the same. Now let's take a look at Princeton's first net zero scenario. <clears throat> this scenario, which they label E plus, assumes high electrification of vehicles and buildings and no particular policy constraints on what kind of energy investments are made to grow that electricity supply. <clears throat> Here's what happens to firm generation, which ends up at only 13% of total generation as wind and solar skyrocket. And of that firm generation, almost all of it is clean firm category, meaning hydro geothermal, nuclear, and combustion plants with carbon capture, which would be split between natural gas and biomass. The next scenario they modeled is a less high electrification scenario they labeled E minus. Oddly enough, they came up with an even higher total electricity demand, but the mix of technologies is pretty similar. Firm generation drops to only 11% of the total power generated and firm clean again accounts for virtually all of the firm generation portion, again in, in Princeton's modeling. The next scenario, a little bit different, is one they call less electrification, high biomass, or E minus B plus. The idea here is that policies are tuned to accommodate more biomass-based liquid fuels for transportation or possibly to foresee uh, market constraints on vehicle electrification that are not obvious today. Anyway, under that scenario, <clears throat> there is a little less electric power demand, but a lot more biomass with carbon capture. So that's the green wedge down here. Still, the firm power amount is not all that different, accounting for about 16% of total electricity and the clean power portion of, of firm power is virtually 100%. Now, the fourth scenario, which they label E plus, RE minus, again, assumes that there is aggressive electrification of vehicles and buildings, but the growth of wind and solar are constrained for some unknown reasons, perhaps rising costs due to land availability or permitting issues, supply chain problems, who knows? But in that case, the high electricity demand will be satisfied by a lot more firm generation. You can see here the huge expansion of nuclear power, that orange blob, and also natural gas with carbon capture, the light gray blob. In all, the share of firm generation would look like this, about 56% of total generation in 2050. And of that, about 95% of it is clean by the standard we've assumed here. Finally, the fifth scenario labeled E plus RE plus, this is kind of the mirror image of E minus, of E plus RE minus, where wind and solar are unconstrained, but there are policy or market forces that completely rule out a role for nuclear and carbon capture by 2050. Without those firm sources, we need way more wind and solar to maintain grid reliability. 
berm power ends up only at 3% in 2050. And all of that comes from hydro and a tiny bit of geothermal energy. Needless to say, all of that firm generation is clean. So Princeton has tried to cover all the bases here. And it tells us that firm generation is, in most scenarios, required for around oh, 1,000 to 5,000 terawatt hours, which is between 11 and 56% of total electricity. Only in the extreme fifth scenario does it drop to just a few percent. Now, what does all this tell us? Tells us that to achieve net zero by 2050, no matter how fast we electrify and how much wind and solar are deployed, firm power will be needed at very least well into the 2030s. Firm power from conventional coal and gas must be steadily replaced by clean firm power. And unless prohibited by some policy decision, carbon capture is likely to play some role, although, um, <clears throat> although it, meaning power generation from plants equipped with it, that could range from as low as 3% to as much as 20% of the total in 2050. Similarly, unless prohibited, nuclear power will supply some amount of firm power ranging from as low as 4% to as much as 30% by 2050. And hydro and geothermal power combined will consistently supply somewhere between three to 400 terawatt hours, or depending on the total demand between eight and 100% of all firm power by 2050. So now I'll move on to some frequently asked questions and I've grouped them according to the technology. So let's start with hydropower. First, aren't most locations already developed? That depends on where the needs are. The energy department says that additional potential, excluding federally protected areas, could double the contribution of hydro, even given the increased demand for electricity by 2050. One of the ways to do this without building new dams is to retro retrofit existing dams that don't currently have power generation. Another question, what impact do reservoirs have on natural habitats? They certainly can have an impact if they're, especially if they're poorly managed and they can reduce water flow, the raised water temperature, degrade water quality and cause sediment buildup. And this can negatively affect fish, birds, and other wildlife. There are remedies to this, provided there is the political will to use them. Another question, what about pumped hydro? You may have heard about. This refers to an energy storage method where water is pumped up into an artificial reservoir when excess renewable energy is available and then run back down through a generator when demand is high. So it's not connected to a natural waterway. So it's not hydropower, strictly speaking, and is covered in our training pages under energy storage. And I'm sure you heard about it if you tuned in to part one. Now on to geothermal. First question, is geothermal power really renewable? It's not wind or solar, and it doesn't come from the sun, but there is a tremendous amount of energy stored in the earth. So there's no danger of depleting it or turning the earth cold. Although it's more accessible at some sites than others, 
so competent analysis and site management is needed to make the economics work. Can geothermal power cause earthquakes? I mentioned that earlier. And the answer is maybe, depending on the technology used. There are four types of geothermal power plant and one of, the, one of them uses hydraulic fracturing to get at the most heat most efficiently. But that has induced some minor seismic events. There are ways to minimize this risk through improved monitoring and modeling along with adoption of power cycles that lessen the disturbance of geology. But again, it's a matter of setting standards and enforcing them. Another question uh, that really involves nomenclature. Uh, what about geothermal building heating? The term geothermal has been used when talking about heat pumps for home heating, but it's a completely different use of the word. A more accurate term is ground source heat pumps where tubing is buried a few feet underground to make a heat pump more efficient because the ground stays warmer than the air on, on very cold winter days. But it has nothing to do with the kind of geothermal power generation we're talking about here, even though the same word is often used. Now for nuclear power. The first question, is nuclear power safe? There's not really a yes or no answer because safe is relative. And while there have been a few high profile incidents, everyone knows about Chernobyl back in 1986 and Fukushima in 2011. Engine safety requirements for nuclear plants and, and the lack of air pollutants make them hundreds of times better than fossil fuels for public health. Over the long term, nuclear power is actually comparable to wind and solar in terms of lives lost per gigawatt hour of power generated. But still, it's essential to keep working to minimize the hazards that still exist. Which leads us to the next question. What about small modular reactors and generation four reactors? Explain this, uh, nuclear reactors design, reactor designs that are inherently safer than the old technology have been proposed for years and research has started and stopped. But now those efforts seem to be finally getting serious. Some companies are pushing ahead with small modular reactors or SMRs. And here's a graphic showing just how much smaller. Uh, so they claim that these could be standardized and be less costly and safer than, than traditional large plants. It remains to be seen whether they can deliver on those claims. But beyond efforts to simply miniaturize conventional nuclear technology, so-called Gen 4 designs would not only reduce capital costs, but be meltdown proof, cut radioactive waste by like 98%, and even put an end to uranium mining altogether, depending on which technology can turn out to be viable. And final, final nuclear question, what about fusion power? This is something that's been popping up in the press lately. Now, theoretically, Fusion could unleash a tremendous amount of energy, but it's proven immensely difficult to harness in a controllable way. There are fuel supply and engineering barriers that are pretty tough. So until those are solved, it's unlikely fusion power, despite the hype in the press, is going to really contribute much in time to address the climate crisis. And finally, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. 
first question, is CCUS safe and permanent? CO2 is, strictly speaking, not a toxin. We're exposed to it every day at a low, a low level. But in a concentrated form, it becomes a potential asphyxiant. Being heavier than air, it can, if it leaks from a pipeline or a well, be a serious hazard to nearby communities. Like a lot of things, how safe it is depends on how rigorously it's monitored and regulated. The other half of this question, is it permanent, refers usually to underground storage. Will it stay there? Experience to date has shown good results in sedimentary rock like sandstone, as long as best practices are followed. And it can be pumped into uh, basalt formations. That's a type of rock that can combine chemically with, with the CO2 in just a few years, where it stays essentially forever. The next question, what about captured CO2 that's used for enhanced oil recovery, which has been controversial in recent years? This EOR is a way of getting more oil out of old wells by pushing it out with a gas like CO2. And this rankles environmentalists because it seems a bit nuts to try and reduce fossil fuel emissions by producing more fossil fuel. But if you consider that oil consumption is controlled by market demand, not by the amount of oil produced, maybe it doesn't really result in more emissions because it just displaces oil that would be produced somewhere else. And besides getting more oil from existing wells could arguably mean fewer new wells are drilled and the CO2 that goes into those wells is still kept out of the atmosphere. So it's still better than not capturing it at all. Final question, isn't carbon capture too expensive? Yes, compared to just letting CO2 blow out into the air, it is. But anything we do to uh, cut emissions is gonna be more expensive than doing nothing at all. The costs of climate change are of course gonna be very serious. And so we have to consider that in light of the question about whether something is too expensive. So as you can see, all of these uh, questions are, are valid and the answers may not be very simple yes or no questions. But these are what we have for now. And a lot of research is going on. A lot of investment is taking place in carbon capture right now. So uh, there is a tax credit called the 45Q tax credit that is available uh, to companies that can sequester CO2. And that's about $85 a ton, and it's proven to be uh, pretty effective. Uh, investments are happening very rapidly, uh, mostly in industrial sources of CO2, not so much at power plants. But it does, uh, it does tell you that a price on carbon is effective in, in driving investment, uh, at least in this case. So uh, let's reflect back and summarize. A stable clean electric grid will require a diversity of complementary solutions. We need both variable and firm sources of power generation to make this transition with minimal disruption. Uh, Princeton's modeling has shown that and common sense tells you that. Thanks to technological advances in every field, it will probably be cheaper today than today in the long run when you consider the avoid climate and health costs that we would otherwise pay. And reduced climate and air pollution will yield healthier, happier lives. So that's what we want, right? 
So now I'll turn it back to Brett. Well, join me for a huge round of applause. Thank you so much, Rick, for obviously all that you've reviewed here. If we didn't get to yours tonight, I have put a link in the chat to Nerd Corner. And for now, I'm just going to unmute all lines so that we can join in a raucous round of applause for Dana and Jonathan and all of you, really, for your advocacy and involvement on this. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Stay safe. And thank you again for being here. Yeah, Rick. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.